and then okay so hi everyone and we're going to talk a little bit about uh pesa coming up and i also want to talk to you about a major event that happened in the jewish world uh this past week so let's start talking about uh let's start talking about the this this big event that happened so uh there was a funeral yesterday in Bnei Brak Bnei Brak is right near Tel Aviv it's where the and I'd like using this word the ultra orthodox community one of the big ultra orthodox communities based and where some of the greatest torah leaders have lived there was a funeral yesterday and they estimate that there were about 750,000 people at the funeral at the it's called in Hebrew Leviah and it's probably the biggest funeral that's ever taken place in Israel's history at least in modern history and I, I don't think you can imagine what a what a, I mean you 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 can go to a I'm not talking about going to a football game, you know, where everyone's in a stadium. This is a, this is something much greater than that. You're talking, you know, on a much bigger scale, 750,000 people. And uh, I'll show you a picture. This is, this is a picture of what it looked like. Let me share the screen and you can, sh and you can, these are from the newspapers from, from Israel yesterday. So first of all, there's a picture of, of Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky is his name. And look at this. This is a like a picture from a drone. These are the streets of Bnei Brak, just completely packed, you know, shoulder to shoulder with uh, with people. So I don't know how they estimate exactly, but I know that my son-in-law went down. He took a train. Uh, I think he had to take two or three trains, and they basically had buses just lined up on the highway, and they and they stopped all you know, private transportation and everybody from Jerusalem came, came down and, um, and they, and why did they come? There was a few, you know, eulogies, not, not for very long, but they were coming to give what's called Kavod Acharon, the final um, uh, honor to Rav Chaim. And I don't, I don't know, Mom, have you ever heard of Chaim Kanievsky? No, no, I haven't. So most people in the secular world have never even heard of him. But obviously when you have someone, you know, that, that 750,000 people come to his, his funeral, he's got to, you know, he's got to be some important personality in the Jewish world. So um, I'll read, I'll just read to you. This is from a letter that the chief rabbi from South Africa, Raoul Goldstein, wrote. So he says, South African Jews, together with the rest of the world, mourn the passing of the leading Torah sage of our generation. So in Hebrew, he was called, he was given the title Sar HaTorah, the Prince of Torah. And when, when you're talking about someone who's the leading Torah sage, you know, people in B'nai Brak, this is what they do. This is their profession in Jerusalem. This is what they do. You know, my 
you know, you know me, my children are, are learning in yeshiva now, but they are being taught by, you know, teachers who've been learning Torah for most of their lives. And those teachers have been, they were taught by people who, you know, learned for most of their lives. And yet they were not called, you know, the leading Torah sage. What does it take to become the leading Torah sage of our generation? So uh, listen to what, listen to the way Rabbi Goldstein, you know, describes it. He says, close to a million Jews, he wrote this just before the funeral, are expected to attend his funeral today in Israel. Now, take a moment to reflect how remarkable that is. Rav Chaim Kanievsky held no official position. He had no other title other than rabbi. He wielded no political power. He wasn't part of any political party or, I mean, he wasn't leader of any political party or executive authority. He commanded no budgets. He didn't have any employees. He didn't, he didn't run a yeshiva or a school, nothing. And yet he was one of the most influential leaders in the Jewish world. So Rabbi Goldstein says his authority derived not from any financial or political power, but simply from the depth and breadth of his Torah wisdom Number one, the nobility of his character and the sincerity of his deeds. The influence he wielded, the honor he was accorded, veneration he inspired resided purely in his spirit. And Rabbi Goldstein himself saw him. He said he experienced the, uh, this personally on a number of occasions. And he, was, he, he said he was struck by the modesty of his small apartment in B'nai Brak. No elaborate office with grand views. No plush furniture. Everything was so simple. Books were everywhere, and one of which was always open in front of him. Um, and he was also accessible, not just to people like Chief Rabbi Goldstein. You know, someone let we we use the the phrase lahavdil. You know, we make havdala on a on a uh, a Saturday night on what's a Shabbos to separate between Shabbos and the rest of the week. In uh, in in the Jewish, you know, like phraseology, when we're trying to make a distinction between something, you know, Jewish and something not Jewish, we say the word lahavdil. And when we want to make a very big separation, we say lahavdil elef havdalas, a thousand separations. So lahavdil elef havdalas, if, if you wanted to go and see the Pope tomorrow, or you wanted to see the Dalai Lama tomorrow, or you, you wanted to see the, you know, the president of the United States, what would that take? How much money would you have to spend? How much influence? How much time would you need to take? When you wanted to go see Rav Kanievsky, who was the leading Torah sage in the generation, all he had to do was go to his house and walk up the stairs. Um, now, obviously, in the last few years, he died. He was 94 years old. So the last few years, um, he had people, you know, taking care of him and, and it was not, not healthy for him to be seeing so many people. Uh, but I got to see him, I'm guessing 10 times in my life. Um, I can't remember the very first time I saw him, but I was very fortunate at Orsameach. We used to get summer groups that used to come, summer and winter groups. And we always used to go down to, you know, the beach in Tel Aviv. And then we used to go, um, uh, you know, to some, maybe the Diaspora Museum. And then we would go to B'nai Brak and we would go, 
you know, Seer of Chaim. And uh, then in later years, I um, went to see him privately. Um, I, first of all, the, the week or two before I left Israel, and the week or two before I left Israel to come to Chicago. So this is 24 years ago, around about now. We left May 1998, so 24 years ago. And at that time, our oldest son was a year and a half old, uh, almost two years old, and he had long, long hair. And I had a friend who was doing the same program as me, and he had a son about the same age. And so we decided we were going to go and get blessings from these great Torah personalities in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. So we first went down to B'nai, or B'nai Brak, not Tel Aviv, B'nai Brak, which is near Tel Aviv. We went down to B'nai Brak and we, we saw two rabbis and then we went to see Rav Chaim. And, you know, you just walk up the stairs, there was a line of people and we waited a while and then we went in and he saw Yeshua, he saw Yeshua's hair and he asked his attendant to bring a pair of scissors because there's a custom when a boy is three years old to have his hair cut. And Rav Chaim thought, you know, that's what we came for. Otherwise, you know, why were we bringing the little boy with? So he, I didn't have the, you know, the courage to say he's only a year and a half old. But uh, Rav Kanievsky maybe saw something, you know, in Yisrael Tzvi and, uh, and cut his hair. Um, and we got a blessing and we left. And then uh, I've, got, I've got a picture of when we were waiting for him because the boys, were they were young and they were tired. So they actually, the, his wife, Robertson Kanievsky, who we named, or not we named, our, uh, our son and daughter-in-law named their, their first daughter after Robertson Kanievsky, Batsheva Esther, Reverend Kanievsky put Yeshotsvi on her bed in her bedroom and gave him a piece of chocolate. And I've got a piece, I've got a picture, photograph of, of her giving him a piece of chocolate. I, I should try to find that and, and show that to you. Um, and then we went in and he and we got the blessing. And then uh, this is another um, another memory that I have. Uh, a number of years later. We were in Israel for a bar mitzvah. As you know, we were in Israel for uh, a, an Orsameach summer trip, and I took my two boys. The Israel Sea was already bar mitzvah, and Meir Simcha was not yet bar mitzvah. And so they wanted to go see Rav Chaim. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just a remarkable thing about, you know, the, the world that I live in, is that what that's what people do when you go to Israel? You'll always, when you come back from a trip to Israel, people will say not, you know, like which restaurants did you go to and what sites did you see? They'll say which gedolim did you go visit? Gedolim mean which were the great Torah sages that you went to go see? Did you go see and get blessings from Rav Yashiv or Rav Shlomo Zalman Albach or Rav Shach or Rav, Rav Chaim? Um, all of those others now, they passed away. But so we, I took Yeshot Sri and May Simcha down to B'nai Brak. Uh, I think we, I'm not contrary if we went into Rav Chaim's office or his, his, his living room then, but we went to pray Mincha, Daven Mincha at the shul that he davens at. 
which is just down the road from him. And at that time, he was able to walk quite easily, and he walked to the as he walked to the shul. So we got there a few minutes early. We went to stand at the back, and uh, Mayor Simchus puts his hand on, you know, he's holding the chair in front of him. And the next thing, Rav Chaim comes and sits right in front of Mayor Simcha because he was such a humble person that he didn't even sit at the front of the shul. And so Mayor Simcha, you can imagine, 12 years old, you know, gets to stand right behind the leading Torah sage of the generation to Davin Mincha. Um, and then the last time I saw him, last time I saw him was four years ago. We went for Pesach. And then I took all three of our boys. And at that time, he wasn't so well and it wasn't easy. But we knew someone who was very close to him who arranged for us to go in. And we went in and he gave us, you know, maybe a minute of his time. Um, and so I, I, I had personal connection to him, saw him a number of times. And all I can tell you is that when you're in the presence of someone like this, and when I tell you a couple of the stories about him, you'll get some idea. Um, uh, you, you are elevated yourself. You feel like you want to become a better person and you want to aspire, you know, even in a very small way uh, to be like him. He was totally, totally in, you know, involved in the, in his Torah learning to almost, you know, he, he didn't even, they say, that he didn't even know the name of the street that he lived on. He just, that, that kind of thing just did not register to him. He knew where he lived and he knew where his shawl was and he just walked from his shawl to his house and that was it. Uh, you know, he didn't have, didn't have any other concerns, you know, in the world. Um, so I want to just, I'll, I'm going to try to tell you, I'll tell you one or two stories about him. Um that just give you a little bit of a, of an idea. So he, he was a, obviously a person that had been gifted with a, a great memory. Um, and he had a regimen every day where he would learn a certain amount of Torah from certain sections in the Torah every day. So he would learn, for example, eight pages of the Babylonian Talmud every day. And he would learn eight pages of the Jerusalem Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi every day. And he would learn a number of pages of the Rambam, the Mishnah Brewer, the, um, the, the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, and, and then he would learn the Midrash and he would learn, you know, basically he would learn the entire Torah, everything that there is to know every year. And he would make a siyum, uh, uh, he, would, he would make a celebration every year, completing the entire Torah. Now, you know that there's something called Daf Yomi, where you learn one page of Talmud a day. It takes seven and a half years to do that. That's just the Jerusalem Talmud. He would do that and everything else every single year. And he wasn't learning it on a superficial level, like many people learn Daf Yomi. He was learning it at the greatest depths because... Like I said, you know, the people that called him the leading Torah sage of our generation were people that were big Torah scholars themselves. And if they saw him as leader, you know, their teachers, then he must have been on a very, very high level. So there's, 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 um, 
there's a story that somebody came up to him and asked him, he said that uh, he, he read in a, in a, a safer book by a, a Torah scholar named the Maral that the beginning of Tachia Samesim, beginning of the revival of the dead when the Mashiach comes, is going to begin at Marasamach Pele in Hebron, where Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov are buried. And he didn't know where the source was. He wanted, he wasn't familiar, it wasn't written in this book what the source was. He wanted to know uh, from Rav Chaim what the source was. So Rav Chaim was walking from, you know, let's say his house to his shore. And that's, you know, sometimes when people could catch him and ask him a question. So Rav Chaim took one step and he said, it's not in the Talmud Bavli. And he took another step and he said, it's not in the Talmud Yerushalmi. And he took another step and he said, it's not yet, it's not there. And then finally he said, it is uh, in the Zohar or what's called the Tikkunay Zohar, which means that what he did was in those five steps, he reviewed in his mind the entire Talmud and everything else. And he did not recognize that phrase in anywhere except this one, one place. So he had instant recall to the entire, what you said he learned it. He had instant recall. Um, uh, I'll tell you one other, so I'll, I'll segue into one other aspect about his life. He wasn't just a great Torah scholar. People used to come to him for blessings and people used to come to him for, you know, people were, were sick or they didn't have children or they weren't married. Um, and there's stories about him that are nothing sort of miraculous. There's, there's, um, uh, there's a, there's a story about him that he was learning the Talmud one day and he was learning about a certain grasshopper and he had a, a doubt what the, the Talmud was saying and what exactly this grasshopper looked like. And all of a sudden this exact grasshopper flew into his, uh, through into his window, into his study area, sat down right you know in front of him on you know, like on his Talmud he picked it up he looked at it it resolved his doubt and then the grasshopper flew away and then as the story goes he thought again and he said you know what I've got another doubt I'm, there's another question that I have and the grasshopper flew back again now you might not believe a story like that or not uh, but as they say they don't tell stories like that about you or me they tell stories like that about Rav Chaim um, but he also he also had an incredible love for the Jewish people, and that's why people from all walks of life, you know, all levels of you know religious religiosity would come to him for blessings. Uh, and I, I've given you just one example, but there's many, many, many stories like this. There was someone who came to him and asked him for a blessing to get married. He was a you know a uh, a young man. And Rav Chaim said to him, your Bashirat, the one that's destined for you, is not even born yet. So the person like 
burst out crying. You know, that means what do you mean? He was going to have to wait for 20 years before he gets married. And about two weeks later, he, or at some time later, he was uh, introduced to someone who had just converted and the, and the shidduch went through and they got married. So what did Rabchai mean? He said that, you know, when a person converts, they basically become a new creation. They get reborn. They get a new neshama. So when Rabchaim said that your Bashet was not even born yet, he, he didn't know who this person was, but in his <clears throat> gift that he'd been given of giving blessings to people, he understood that uh, that this was his this person's Bashet. And there are many, many other stories like, like that. Just most recently, you know, he died on Friday, died on Friday, and they had the funeral on Sunday. Normally you get buried as soon as possible, but they were concerned that because they knew 750,000 people or a million people might go to his funeral, they were concerned that uh, the police might start working on Shabbos or people might drive on Shabbos to get there. or um, uh, So they postponed it till, till Sunday. Um, he died on Friday, which means that was Purim in Jerusalem. I, when I spoke to my... My son-in-law, he was the one that told me about it. It was very, very sudden. <clears throat> um, when he when he died, the whole of you know Jerusalem just basically was in shock, and there were people walking around, you know, crying and crying. And um, and to go from Purim, you know, which is the happiest day of the year, to you know such mourning was such a like turnaround. Um, but just not even. A week ago, he issued a like a proclamation because people wanted to know what do we do for the Jews in Ukraine? You know, besides all the humanitarian help and providing them food and shelter, etc., he said that we should learn an extra hour on Purim for the Jews in Ukraine. So he was giving instructions to the Jewish people. You know, at age 94, the day before or a week before he died. Um, so how do you, you know, what is a person supposed to do when, when something like this happens? Uh, it's First of all, it's a, it's a scary time because um, Rav Chaim predicted, I think, during the Gulf War that no missiles would fall in B'nai Brak. And many... People said that it was in his merit because he was such a great Torah sage that no missiles struck. So when someone like this dies, people get very worried that, you know, something bad might happen, God forbid, to the Jewish people. So we, we ourselves have to increase our prayer and our Torah learning um, to, to get that same protection that he gave us. Um, so one of the things, you know, I want to try and do is try add something to my learning schedule, you know, uh, I can cut out, you know, time that I spend reading emails, checking the internet, you know, you know, doing, um, you know, mundane things that I don't really need to do and to try and increase my Torah learning. And with, you know, Pesach coming up just in three weeks time, one thing I want to start doing is, um, is start learning about the Seder. And, and the Haggadah. And it turns out that Rokanievsky, even though he didn't give a class, he wasn't a, a teacher in, the, in that sense of the word, but he, he wrote a lot. Uh, and one of the 
one of the things that's happened over the last couple of years is a lot of his works have been translated into English. And one of them that just came out not so long ago was his Haggadah. And it goes through, uh, it goes through what he used to do himself. Um, so I'll just read one thing. So we'll end off with one, with one personal practice of Rav Chaim. You know, the first thing we do getting ready for Pesach is what's called Bedikas Chometz. Bedikas Chometz is when you check in for the Chometz. So um, he said, it says over here, for Bedikas Chometz, Rav Chaim turns on the light in the room and uses a candle. He lights an extra candle, which he keeps ready. So if the candle goes out, he will be able to continue Bedikas Chometz without interrupting to light another candle. He's careful to check for comments in all the Swarim, all the books that he, he intends to use on Pesach, checking every page carefully. Um, and in recent years, he obtained extra sets of Swarim that he designated for use on Pesach so there would be no concern of comments. Um, so there's lots to learn about him, lots to be inspired by him. It's a big loss, but as Rabbi First, who saw him many, many times, one of the leading rabbis in Chicago said, the Jewish people will continue. We'll, we've got other leaders uh, as unique and, and special as Rav Chaim was. Um, we, will, you know, we will continue and uh, continue to be inspired by him. So uh, I'm glad I had this opportunity just to talk a little bit about you know, one of the greatest Torah leaders in the Jewish world that we've ever heard, ever, ever, ever had. And, uh, you know, we should, we should try, you know, improve ourselves, uh, uh, you know, in his merit.